as we get to know the Brazilian percussion-making community one interview at a time. This is Courtney. And this is Diana. Hello, world. How are you? <laughs> we can't hear you guys. I know. You have to send your reviews and comments to hear you. Five-star reviews only. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. So, Courtney, how's it going? Oh, things are good. Things yeah. Are good. Spring's coming. Right. Flowers are out. Yes, yes. Shiny. Allergies are out as well. Yeah. <laughs> Dudu is in Portland. That's exciting. Yes, he's a guest of just visiting, just visiting the city of Portland, being a tourist. That's all. Yes. It's very exciting to have yes. him around. Um, uh, Courtney and I are uh, playing Marika 2, getting excited for upcoming gigs, right? Yeah, it's all coming together. Monica is getting better. People are practicing. My ears finally stopped ringing from the other day's <laughs> practice, so that's gotta, good. Gotta get some better earplugs. Yeah, I'm gonna um, invest. If anybody has any uh, suggestions on what kind, oh yeah, let us know and we'll put let it up. Let us know. Yes. Um, yeah, I've been kind of in between a couple different ones, and I need to make a decision. Awesome. Have you ever done those fitted ones? That's what I'm gonna look into. Yeah. Let me know how much those are. I looked into those in Corvallis, and it was like $150 for each ear. It was just like, ouch. (laughs) Yeah, they're not cheap, but I guess they'll save my ears from being destroyed. True. So, yeah, send us your earplug recommendations, folks. You don't want to do the dorky over-the-ear thing? (laughs) (laughs) You know those big mowing-the-yard, old man (laughs) mowing-the-yard things? I don't think I could handle those because I, I don't feel like I could hear anything. Even the foam ones, I, you know, if I forget my regular ones and I use foam ones, I feel like I can't hear anything. So I think if I use the big over-the-ear ones, I'd be completely lost. Yeah, I've got some pretty good foam ones. And then when people are like joking around and making jokes, I just sort of stand there like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> Everybody's laughing. Yeah. Are they laughing smile. at me? And smile. <laughs> exactly. Oh, anyway. Anyway, we have a great, um, exciting show with a very special guest. This guest is a longtime friend and mentor of mine, Mr. Michael Spiro, and um, we've wanted to have him on the show for a while, and we finally, finally found him out there. He's on sabbatical, and we got to talk to him, have a little chat with him. Um... So, yes, Mr. Spiro is a world-renowned percussionist, recording artist, and educator, known specifically for his work in the Latin music field. Spiro's formal education includes a bachelor's degree with honors in Latin American studies from the University of California and three and a half years of graduate work in ethnomusicology at the University of Washington. His practical education consists of a seven-year apprenticeship with Francisco Aguabella, a relationship which continues today, and extensive study throughout Latin America. He has studied annually in Cuba over the years with musicians such as Jose Luis Quintana, Changuito, Esteban Vega Bacalao, Chacha, Daniel Diaz, Juan Claro Blanco of Orquestra Ritmo Oriental, 
Regino Jiménez, Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, and Grupo Afrocuba de Matanzas. In addition, in 1986, he spent two months training at Portela, the famous Escola de Samba in Rio de Janeiro. Spyro currently resides in San Francisco, California, where he is an integral part of the Bay Area music scene. He is also an associate professor in the Department of Music at Indiana University. He records and produces with groups throughout the West Coast and still tours worldwide with the percussion trio Talking Drums, which he co-leads with David Garibaldi and Jesus Diaz. In June 1996, his recording Bata Ketu was released on Bembe Records to international critical acclaim, including being voted one of the top 50 drum records of all time by Drum Magazine. Spyro is a Grammy nominee and is a frequent visiting artist at universities worldwide. In 2004, Spyro received a Grammy nomination for his work as both producer and artist on Mark Levine's Latin jazz release, Isla. And in 2005, he released Bata Embera, which he wrote and co-produced with Professor B. Michael Williams. The CD received rave reviews around the world for its fusion of Afro-Cuban folkloric music with the Embera music of Zimbabwe. And that same year, he was voted runner-up in the jazz fusion category in Drum Magazine's Reader's Poll Award. In 2006, Chuck Schur Publications released his book, The Conga Drummer's Guidebook, and it has already become the standard in the field for intermediate and advanced instruction. He is a frequent visiting artist at universities worldwide. In addition to the position he held in the jazz department at the University of California, Berkeley, Spyro has taught at numerous colleges throughout North America and Europe and continues to be a presenter at national and statewide conventions of the Percussive Art Society and International Association of Jazz Educators. All the music that you're going to hear today in the background is all from the CD Bataketu that he also released with uh, uh, Mark Lampson, who is episode six, I think. And Georgie Alabe, who is... And Georgie, right. Who is episode... Ooh. Eight? Or nine? nine or eight? It was one of those <laughs> ones from last summer. Go back in the archives. Listen to those two. Man, we only have, this is our 19th episode. We probably really should know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one by one. <laughs> oh, anyway. Well, everybody, enjoy this podcast, and thank you for listening. sunny day today we did and um today we have a very special guest um he's a mentor and uh inspiration to many people he's like a good friend and just has inspired me personally quite a bit and um i want to welcome our guest michael spiro hi guys hello thanks for coming on my pleasure well, this has been a long time coming. I mean, you were one of the first people I thought of when we uh, decided to do this podcast, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. 
Um, I, I'm not quite sure where we're headed. We're going to find out, aren't we? <laughs> we are. Awesome. We're going on a long journey here. Yeah, okay. So, Michael, can you tell us currently what what you're doing? Um, uh, in general. In general? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess uh, I have a very confusing life in that I uh, still live in San Francisco, California, but I work in the incredibly bizarre state of Indiana um, because I teach at Indiana University. And so I uh, basically log a lot of miles in the air. Wow. So so that's what I'm doing. So you are a professor in the, is it world music or what is it called there? No, uh, I am a professor actually at what is very, uh, uh, it turned out, I found out after I got the gig oh. <laughs> at a very, very famous classical music school. Uh, and I am uh, the only teacher of quote unquote world music at the school, uh, which makes my job very interesting. Um, so my official job title is that I am the world percussion professor, which uh, I think in their eyes, distinguishes me from the timpanist, the marimbist, and the drum set player. So this has been a long journey getting there, correct? I mean, you started, where did you start? Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, wow. I started playing a percussion in Santa Cruz, California, which is where I met the illustrious and grand poobah Dennis Broughton. <laughs> Dennis! <laughs> Um, which is why Dennis and Dennis is my oldest friend. Dennis and I have been friends for about 47 years. That's great. Um, well, whatever 1971 to now would be a long time. (laughs) Uh, and so I started playing percussion in Santa Cruz and have spent the rest of my life trying to, (laughs) just figure out how to play. So uh, I started there and then uh, uh, studied with people in the Bay Area. Uh, Then I moved to the Bay Area. Then I started traveling to Cuba and Brazil, but mostly Cuba. And that's something that I still do to this day. So that's kind of the short uh, take on it. So let's kind of get into some of that nitty gritty in there in between those years. <laughs> yeah. So did you, did your, did your family, was your family musical? Did they? No, I'm a complete weirdo. <laughs> um, <Aren't we> all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, no, um, my family has had nothing to do with music. Um, although I guess, um a lot of people have think that this is sort of a no-brainer. I don't know if it is or not, actually, but uh, my father was an anthropologist, uh, and so I lived all over the world, and so uh, I did get exposed to every manner of languages, food, musics, um, dance, art. Uh, by the time I was 16, I'd been around the world twice, and so people therefore assumed that my study of Afro-Cuban or Brazilian music 
somehow is a function of that. I don't know if I agree with it, but nevertheless, that is some part of my upbringing. Um, but no, musically, I, my, I, nothing in my family would indicate that I would be a musician. Hmm. When, when, so you grew up in Santa Cruz then, and then at no. some point... Oh, no, you no, didn't? No, 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 no. I went to college in Santa Cruz. Oh, okay. I, I, I didn't start playing music till I was almost 20 years old. Hmm. That would so be interesting, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if, if I'm any good at all, and that's highly questionable, but if, if, if I have any gifts or talents or skills, I, if I'm going to be an inspiration to anybody, it should be for that. That unlike everybody I know who started when they were three and five right. and seven, right. I didn't start till I was almost 20. So if I have any skills, I would be of some inspiration in that. Apparently, it can be done. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. You're right, because most people say, oh, I you know, was playing on cans in my kitchen when i was three mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> my but, parents bought me a drum set and uh, you know. but see i was playing on cans in the kitchen at three mm-hmm. but my parents wouldn't buy me a drum set unless i agreed to join the school band and i didn't want to play i wanted to play r&b on a drum set not marches you know in the seventh grade band and mm-hmm. they wouldn't they wouldn't spend the money on the drum set if i didn't do a year in the school band, so I kept banging on the pots and pans. <laughs> Interesting. So then you, when you were in college in Santa Cruz, you ended up going to a dance class or something and meeting Dennis? How did no, that happen? No, you know, no um, uh, I moved in to a, a house that happened to be a house filled with musicians, and uh, if memory serves, one of the musicians knew Dennis. I can't remember how. Again, this was not exactly yesterday. Um, <laughs> and uh, Dennis ended up sh- showing up at, at the house that we all lived in one day, uh, looking a little different than he looks today. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I met him, and then he knew this other guy, and... Somehow, again, I can't remember, but we forged this friendship at the time. And then we started uh, a year or two after that. Uh, we, well, first we started practicing together, uh, conga drums. Um, and then we ended up starting um, Santa Cruz's first and maybe only salsa band called Sofrito. Oh. And... If memory serves, uh, boy, it's a long time ago. I think Dennis played congas in the band and I played timbales or something to that effect. But um, uh, And then our friendship continued on and on and on. And then, uh, of, uh, well, like I say, and it's just, you know, exists to this day. Well, you know, I've heard from some of your contemporaries that you've, um, about kind of a group of you fellows studying in New York back in the yeah. day. Yeah. Can that you was, me... that was just another of the many, let's go try to learn how to play. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and so we went at a loft in New York 
uh, and we all went off to Bongo Boot Camp. <laughs> and uh, well, that's what we called it. And, um, you know, I would be frightened to think of what year that was. Um, it, I, actually, I could guess that it would have been around 1979, um, maybe, maybe 1980, 81, somewhere in there. Uh, and we spent, I, I must, it was at least a month, maybe longer, um, literally crashed out on a, uh, on the floor of an apartment in, on the West side. And all we did all day, every day was play and go hear people and then bring them to our loft and make them give us lessons in exchange for money and other party favors. <laughs> and, um, uh, so yeah, you know, we've had this little clan, if you will, for quite some time. And so who, who would we know any of the people that you studied with there? Well, you know, that we studied with or studied from, uh, you would know Nana Vasconcelos. Yes. You would know Ayrton. Yes. Wow, um, cool. Uh, you probably wouldn't know Steve Berrios, who died a year or two ago. Um, he was a very famous uh, timbale player and a bata player. He played with Mongo for many, many years on timbales. He also was Art Blakey's roadie for about 20 years. Mm. Um, he was the drum set player in Jerry Gonzalez's Ford Apache band, which to me was one of the true uh, actual Latin jazz bands, um, multi-Grammy winning band. But you might not have heard of Steve specifically, um, let's see, a guy named Chambo, who now plays conga drums for Larry Harlow and the, and whatever Larry currently calls his Latin legends or something. I can't remember exactly the name of his band. Um, uh, and then, uh, I also studied a lot with a guy named Louis Bausso, who was the head of the Boys Harbor School. Uh, and still uh, teaches there, um, but I th and th I know there were others, but the truth is, so long ago, hard for me to remember. So that must have been quite an adventure. Oh, to say the least. We were <laughs> we were young, dumb, and dumb. So uh, it was pretty much all day, all night. Uh, it, yeah, it was quite, quite, quite the good time, actually. So back then, I mean, I, I, were your parents involved back then? Did they care that your their young sons were running off to New York to, to do um, I think what was true was that when I, both of my parents were academics, and when I quit college to become a Congo drummer, <laughs> it was um, a, a horrible, horrible uh slap in the face to them uh took my father many years to get over that hmm. uh you know mothers are different they tend to to you know forgive much faster than fathers and since i'm a father i can <laughs> speak to that <laughs> um uh 
I mean, eventually, you know, I got enough, for lack of a better word, awards and um, uh, nominations for various things and that, you know, my dad kind of figured out that it wasn't as bad as he might have thought. <laughs> but uh, to quit the, the academy, you know, because I was in grad school and then I just never... I never finished anything and on a, it was very painful time for my uh, father in particular uh, for a long time. And then finally he figured out it was just life and drums are just what I was going to do. And so it, it ended up being fine. Hmm. I think parents, they, they worry so much about their kids and they put a lot of I mean, I'm not a parent. I'm just sort of guessing here, but they put a lot of hope into like what they think you can become. And then when you kind of reject that, it's like you said, I think it's hurtful. Yeah. I mean, listen, listen to, I don't in, now, you know, I don't, not only do I not blame them, I totally get it. And mm -hmm. how anybody could be a parent of a young adult in the late 1960s and early seventies. <laughs> I mean, if it were me, I would have worried myself to death. So, um, no, I, 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 I have nothing but empathy and, um, and I'm ridden with guilt for what I put them through, but, uh, it was still my life and I had to make the decisions, not them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think at this point too, we should also say that, um, the dentist that we keep referring to is Dennis Broughton of, um, he's the, one of the people that started California Brazil camp that Diana and I are always raving about and bring up in almost every podcast. So just to <laughs> throw that in there. Yeah. Uh, I suppose I should have said that my bad. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I perhaps mistakenly assumed that this was somehow related to and associated with Brazil camp. And that's why I mentioned Dennis in that, in, in that I should have been more clear about that. My bad. Well, yeah, it is. It's then that's good. But there are we do actually have people from other places that listen, and we have fans have in no New Zealand. Idea what we're talking about. <laughs> I see. I see. Yeah, I just like this to share that. I think it's good that we talk about different people that we know. Yeah, there's such a a good community that yeah. has developed over years. Yeah. Um. So after that. New York trip, and maybe this came in beforehand, but um, so there was a growth of kind of the Bay Area Brazilian scene, which I imagine you had a big part of. Um, I, let me think about after. Oh, I, I don't. It might have been during. In other words, mm -hmm. there was a there was a Brazilian scene in San Francisco um, before I moved to the Bay Area. I moved to the Bay Area in nineteen eighty, mm -hmm. um, and there was already a scene primarily. Um, I'm sure different people that you've talked to have mentioned the name Batucaje and Jose Lorenzo. It's in my um, notes. <laughs> and uh, he was already here when I got here. Uh, and then I joined the Brazilian scene, if you will, uh, a year or two after getting here. And um, uh, yeah, I think it would be fair to say that I, had a fair amount to contribute to that, uh, both in terms of carnival music, um, pr primarily samba. There was, we knew nothing of maracatu at the time or 
um, you know, other forms of carnival music. Uh, and then I was in a number of different bands, you know, small bands playing in clubs. Um, and I played with every band you want to name from the Bay Area at one time or another, from Viva Brazil to, um, all, you know, any number of different iterations of Brazilian formations that I've been in now, you know, over the last uh 40 plus years here. Now at that time, where were your, um, who were the teachers since, I mean, today we have, you know, so many teachers and people who have been studying in Brazil, Cuba, all over the place. But back then, who was the go-to person? For Brazilian music? Yes. Uh, or how well, that was learning? You, you know, we were learning from listening to records and, and um, are those those round things? Yes, the, and, uh, made out of cement. Um, yeah, there really weren't any. I mean, there were each each person would like like we did go to New York and try to pick up what you could from somebody there, and then somebody would have a record of something, and then somebody knew a little bit about this and that. But, it I mean, all of those musics at the time, uh, and this is the old, you know, when I walked barefoot through the snow to go to class, um, we were walking barefoot through the snow whether it was Cuban music or Brazilian music. And when you compare that to the day, to the, to today, it's, it's well, literally a different century. And it was a different century. We did the best we could with what we, what we could figure out at the time. And then little by little, uh, we started to either go to Brazil or meet more Brazilians or, go somewhere where there was a badass Brazilian dude. But at that time, there really wasn't anybody. I mean, Jose was, Jose Lorenzo was, I think, kind of the first guy to teach Brazilian music in the Bay. And in retrospect, he didn't know that much himself. Hmm. He was a dancer, not a drummer. Uh Interesting. That sounds kind of like a really cool time of, of everyone just sort of being wide open and sponging it up. Yeah, by the same token, though, you know, that's how you get charlatans and that's how you get. Mm. Um, uh, well, I don't know how you take that tooth out. Try a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's cool, but it ain't cool. Mm, and Gotcha. Um uh I much prefer uh I, I believe in lineages and I believe in the passing of knowledge, but of course that also requires certain behavior and certain responsibilities and the modern world does not conform to that notion. So it it certainly is a is more complicated when you when you come at it from that way. But I think the knowledge is truer and the art form, um, whether it's secular or sacred, is, I think, preserved in a much better way than we're all randomly trying to figure out how to put this transmission back in the car. 
Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit more about the lineages and your respect for that? Well, just that I think that that all of these musics are don't come out of nowhere. Um, they come out of um, uh, well, you know, we don't want to get too bogged down, but um, sure I do. just think that <laughs> no, nah, we don't. But like for example, <laughs> an Escolaji samba is not it has nothing to do, you know, in on on the surface uh, with lineage or you know sacred traditions. And yet every Ashkola has its own history and lineage of who who led the bateria, who taught who, why does Manguera sound the way that it sounds? Because it has a tradition of you know of of the way that it sounds. And well, who brought that and who took it over and who has sustained it and why? And so it to me when you are born into and believe in and respect a tradition, the 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 end result to me has a profundity that um, that doesn't happen just when you put a bunch of great players together. So I guess from a sports analogy, all star teams will still get their butts kicked by a really good team, even if the good team doesn't have the quality of individual players that make up the all-star team. And good teams are, to me, like sort of, that's how they, in musical terms, they come out of a lineage. They come out of this guy taught, this guy taught, these guys taught, those guys taught, these guys. So I'm, um, and that's one reason, of course, why, uh, like teaching in the in the university setting is weird and doesn't quite fit what I do, um, because of course the the nature of the paradigm doesn't fit my my teaching and learning belief system. Hmm. I like I like having that discussion with people because I it's. Um, I feel like Samba is spreading quite quickly um, in the United States, which I think is cool. But at the same time, you get, um, I, I have a lot of conversations with people who, and it's kind of around that issue of, you know, I feel strongly that we should understand where it comes from and understand, you know, just what it is and why it is the way it is. But then some people are like, let's just groove and let's change it in this way and this way and this way, which I also, I understand, but at the same time, I feel like we need to know the basics first before we start messing with it. Cause we, this is something that's been developed for a long period of time by a lot of different people. And anyway, I think that that's a conversation that's happening right now. Well, I don't think it's happening enough. And I think that, that the modern generation wants, thinks that they can own things after having, you know, played it for three years, five years, 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, and the end result will be that their music will probably suck. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, and you can quote me on that. And, um, and, you know, we could, we could kind of, you know, it, it can almost do empirical tests. Okay. Go play it. And we'll sit in the audience and we'll tell you what we think. And, I, and and I should add that part of the problem is 
this whole notion of world music um, is so offensive to me um, and so unethical and so neo-colonial in its notion that mm-hmm. um, that well, what do you mean world music? So Mozart wasn't part of the world. <laughs> uh, Beethoven was from Neptune. Um, and the notion that all the music outside of Western Europe is somehow one thing. And, right, right. and we'll just mash it all together into this sort of, you know, if this is Tuesday, it must be Belgium, Wednesday, France, Friday, Bulgaria. So I'm offended by all of it. And and I I really don't want to have anything to do with it. And that being said, I'm the guy that's probably known the most for mixing styles and genres. So I think I'm the most hypocritical person I know. Um, so I guess I want to go back to you went back to school. You when did you decide you wanted to pursue this and and pursue it academically? Well. Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I, I quit under I, I quit my undergrad work and then I went back uh, probably out of fear that I even though I wanted to play music that I probably should at least get a bachelor's degree so that I wouldn't starve to death and so I went back to school and I got a degree in Latin American studies at UC Santa Cruz um, and then I played music for about uh, three or four years and then I got frightened again and thought, well, why don't I get a master's degree just in case? So I went to the University of Washington uh, with the idea of getting a doctorate in uh, ethnomusicology, which is where I met all of Diana's uh, Portland compatriots during that (laughs) time period. because I was playing in Seattle and they were playing in Portland. Uh, And then I did three and a half years of graduate work and then I quit that to move to the Bay Area to learn to play bata drums. And uh, so I never got, I never finished my, my graduate degree. So throughout that whole time you had, you had been traveling to the other countries? No, not yet. No, um, Cuba you couldn't go to, and Brazil I didn't know nearly enough um, of anything to like get on a plane and go to Brazil. Um, now, actually, I should say that that's not entirely true. When I graduated uh, with my undergraduate degree in 1975, Dennis Broughton and I got on a plane, and we went to Haiti and Puerto Rico with the idea that we were going to study there. But we were extremely naive, and Haiti in 1975 was very much akin to Somalia today, and I'm not exaggerating. It was um, a a living hell, Mm -hmm. and as I had told you before, I had been around the world twice by the time I was 16. I was not a completely naive person. never seen poverty, never seen starvation. I'd seen all of that in my youth and never seen anything as bad as Haiti. Mm -hmm. 
And the notion of sticking around Haiti to go take drum lessons in the middle of Dante's Inferno was abhorrent to me. And um, so we went to Puerto Rico and um, spent some time there. But I, I, don't, I don't think I was hip enough at the time to quite know how to hang out there for several months. And obviously I was, you know, a young guy with not very much money. So, you know, there was no way I could sort of see staying long enough to really make it um, viable. And so it came back after a somewhat short period of time. But no, my significant travels, if I can use that word significant, uh, to the Caribbean or to South America uh, took place, didn't start until the mid-1980s. And how did um, playing Bata come about? Uh, The first time I ever heard the drums, I didn't even know what they were, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I then spent many years trying to find them but Hmm. they weren't you couldn't find them really um they there weren't but a handful of players in the united states and the ones that played them wouldn't teach anybody um and i kept looking and kept looking and finally in 1980 the guy who um initiated me into the religion that I practice, um, was one of the first Americans to ever play bata drums. And when I was first studying percussion with him, he wouldn't teach me. But in 1980, he called me on the phone and said that he had decided that he would teach them. And if I wanted to learn that he would teach me, and I basically got on a plane a week later and left Seattle and never went back. Hmm. Why is this a naive question? Why would they not teach you? They wouldn't teach anybody. Why wouldn't they teach anybody? Because it was a secret. The religion was a secret and the music was a secret. Oh, I see. Wow. I didn't know that. Mm. And and when you first heard Bata, did you know about the association with the religion? Hmm. Yeah, I did. Mm. So you started this mentorship with this uh, with this patalero, and did that continue for a long time? Did you continue? Mm, well, studying what happened was then. Um, I mean, I, he's still. I'm still very, very close with him. Um, but in 1982. Uh, I was playing in a band called the Orquesta Batachanga, and which was a Afro-Cuban charanga dance band. Uh, and a guy named Francisco Arwabea walked up to the three percussionists in the band, of which I was one, and said, I'm bringing sacred drums from Cuba, and you guys are going to play them with me. He didn't ask. He told us. And, <laughs> uh, uh, and when did, did not argue with Francisco Arbovea <laughs> since he was a true force of nature. And unlike um, 
any other person I've ever known in my life. And so um, we ended up, or I ended up sort of apprenticing with him for one could almost argue uh, till the day that he died, but, you know, for probably about a decade. Uh, and that's where all of that stuff kind of started really seriously, seriously for me, because we were playing ceremonies all the time. Is it offensive to people in Cuba that was playing the playing bata and felt it, you know, very strongly shouldn't be shared? Was it offensive that people were sharing it? Or is it offensive now that, you know, a lot of people are sharing it? And Well, I mean, it wasn't offensive in our case, because we were, we weren't, he wasn't sharing it with us. He was teaching us because we had to play ceremonies with him and he couldn't play by himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's all, everything's out. Everything's out of the closet. So no, it's not offensive at all. Hmm. After all, I teach it at a university in the middle of the United States <laughs> right. to fresh, <laughs> freshmen and sophomores <laughs> who wouldn't have the slightest idea Right. Um, so, uh, no, it's it's now all come out of the closet. Just like, in a lot of ways, just like Candomblé. I mean, if it's all the same. This is all music that was incredibly discriminated against because it comes out of slavery and racism. And it had to be underground to survive for, whether you want to say 100 years or 200 years or however long that you want to say. And... Finally, little by little, it starts to come out into the open, and then kind of it's okay, and then it's a little more okay, and then, you know, it's now kind of just out there as part of life. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So when when was your first trip to Cuba? 1984. And did you have connections to 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 study with anybody in particular, or did you just want to make this a? I trip? just literally flew to Mexico City, walked across the airport, walked up to the Air Cubana desk, and said, "How can I go to Cuba?" I knew nobody. Wow. <laughs> Did you know Spanish? Yes. That's a... Much better then than I do now. <laughs> so you get to Cuba, and what happens? Well, that's 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 a um, what happens is that I'm trying to find this one guy who made the the sacred drums that I was playing with Francisco Aguavea, and all I knew was that he was in Matanzas. That's all I knew. And the most, for the most roundabout, weird, strange, no way to explain it, I ended up in a breakfast line at a hotel and a guy looking at me and he's, and for reasons that too hard to explain and I'm looking at him, and so he's kind of looking at me like, okay, what's your story, dude? 
And I go, I'm trying to find this guy. And he takes off his apron and he turns to his co-workers and says, I'll be back tomorrow. And he says, follow me. And we get on a sugar cane truck. <laughs> and What? Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, well, look, I'm pretty creative, but I couldn't. I'm not that good. This sounds like a movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It was. was. And we get on a truck, a sugar cane truck that goes about five miles an hour. And two hours later, we end up in the city of Matanzas and standing in front of this guy's door, or not door, the door to his solar, which is, means the door to a big kind of like a compound. And they knock on the door, and the guy says, finally comes to the door, and he looks at me, and I don't think he'd ever seen a white person in his life. Certainly hadn't seen a white American in his life. And looks at me with the, who in the, are you, and why, what are you doing, wasting my time? Um, and I said, well, I'm from blah, 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 California, Francisco, and he just goes, uh-huh, liar, and he shuts the door. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then I got to stand there, like standing there on the street. And like, now what do you do? So I knocked again and I said, no, really, I, honest, I'm not making this up. And so he made his sons go get the drums and he, and he invited me into the portal of the compound and set the chairs up at the doorway. Like, not, don't come in. Right. Just, right? And, and he started playing, and then I either knew what to play or I didn't. And then when I did, um, basically the whole town came out that night to greet the freak from <laughs> the United States. And... That was the beginning of my uh, my relationships in the town of Matanzas, Cuba, where I now have lifelong everything: lifelong relationships, lifelong commitments, lifelong responsibilities, and lifelong gifts. Wow. That's an amazing story. <laughs> yeah, and I know it sounds like one of those, you know, movie stories. It actually is the truth, and I'm actually, when I say speak it, it sounds like complete horseshit. But I'm, I'm actually not embellishing it. That's actually what happened. Wow. And... So did you end up staying in Matanzas for a yes. while then? Yes. For, for how long? Uh, well, I had a 30-day visa. Mm -hmm. So so I don't know, probably two and a half weeks, and then my money ran out. And who did you stay with while you were there? I mean, um, Well, that's part of the thing. Uh, there was no place to stay in Matanzas. Right. Nobody ever went to Matanzas. That's why I jokingly said this guy had never seen a white American. He'd probably seen maybe a white European, perhaps. Obviously, there are white Cubans, but it's like nobody would ever come on vacation from Japan and go to, you know, Dayton, Ohio. Like, there's no reason to go <laughs> right. there. Mm -hmm. So 
there was no hotel, no nothing. So the closest place that you could stay was what has since become a very famous, but at the time was kind of small, a beach town called Varadero, mm. which was um, forty-five, which is forty-five kilometers away. So at the end of every day, I had to get on a bus and go back to Varadero um, to stay in my hotel room. And so then the second visit, which was a year later, after playing a ceremony with my with my teacher and my mentor, um, we got back from a, a, a little village that we'd been playing in, and it was like 2.30 in the morning, and the buses had stopped running. And so I spent the night at his in his shed, literally on straw with me and a rooster fighting over the dry <laughs> space. And I'm not making that up. And at 6 a.m., the police came, knocked on the door and arrested both of us. You and the rooster? No, me and my mentor. Um, because you were not allowed to sleep in anyone's home. Right. And um, so I spent a day and a half under armed guard wow. in a in a jail cell um, because I had not gone back to my hotel in Varadero, which was I didn't know it at the time, which was legally required, and there was no place to stay in Varadero. I mean, in Matanzas. So, I mean, I guess you were the only white guy in town, but was it the CDR that snitched on you? Or well, that, it was the CDR and it was the hotel maid who reported to oh. the, that I had not, the bed hadn't been slept in. I hadn't come back. It was both. So that was like a curfew kind of a thing? Well, I don't know if there was an exact hour on the curfew, but... Um, I hadn't come back, and and the peep the CDR, the Comité por la Defensa de la Revolución, you know, they spy on everybody, and they saw me go in at two in the morning and not come back out. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. So, yeah, I have, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And, um... Did you have to pay, like, did you bribe them or did no, you just pay fine? No, no, no. What happened was, remember, this was 1985. It was mm-hmm. illegal for me to be in Cuba um, from the United States government standpoint. I was right. completely illegal. Mm-hmm. And the Cubans just, they just, they didn't care. They just want your money. They don't care where you're from. But 1980s were big. I mean, Cuba remains a fascist dictatorship. I mean, the fact that people are drinking and partying and dancing and playing drums does not alter the fact that you can go to jail for any reason at any time, and that's still mm-hmm. true. Hmm. And people people forget that, you know. They forget that if Raul Castro wants to throw you in jail because he feels like it, there is no 
recourse. You're gone. So I'm running I'm running around this sleeping at this guy's house. They arrest me and they since nobody would ever go to Dayton, they assumed that I was a spy and they insisted mm-hmm. that I was a spy. And so it wasn't a matter of bribing them. They firmly believed that I was a counter-revolutionary. And then they went around to the neighborhood and talked to everybody. And everybody went, dudes, this guy's just a, he's stupid enough to play drums. And he, he, he's just trying to figure out how to play him. That's so he came to us. You're and, a spy. Yeah. And um, so eventually, like, they, they believed him. Like, it was like there was, or me, or both of us, like, there wasn't, like, some phony, made-up thing. It was, oh. But, see, for them, look, r- racism in the Americas runs rampant everywhere, right? So... The notion that a white American would be hanging out with Afro-Cubans in the worst neighborhood, you know, the poorest neighborhoods, was so foreign to a policeman. Like, that, that's just, that can't be, right? That's not possible. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, I was lying. <clears throat> I was a spy. But... If a hundred people kept going, he's just a drummer. He's a, just a dumb drummer. What can we tell you? And they finally believed it. And they they let me go, but they said I had to leave the country immediately. Mm. And, and how long after did you come back? And so then I figured I would never get to go back, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And then... I got noticed that it was kind of okay <clears throat> um, for me to go back. And I thought about it long and hard, and then I did. And it was okay. In fact, <clears throat> I was uh, at a ceremony then my next trip. Now it's like two years later. And uh, we're playing a big ceremony and a lot of people and the police come and they knock at the door because they would do that all the time uh, just to check everybody's documents, you know, like just they're checking up on you, not me, but on every the situ- whatever. And there were probably 200 people there and they put everybody against the wall and they start going around the room asking for, you know, documentos for your for your. IDs and the guy gets to me and the then the guy from across the room goes, No, that's the American guy we arrested a couple of years ago. Don't worry about him. He's cool. I'm serious. I'm serious. Like they remembered, oh yeah, you're that guy. Like, don't waste your time checking his his papers. We already know what his degree. So uh yeah, pretty weird. Pretty weird. You were famous. Yeah, for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Correct. So, you primar- you, primarily your mentorship was in Matanzas. Yes. Style. Um, uh, you- well, at least to start. But then mm-hmm. when I was initiated as a priest, 
I was initiated by a guy named Regino Jimenez, who was from mm-hmm. La Habana. Mm-hmm. And so then I sort of have a pretty serious foot in both camps. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I can play with Miguel Bernal, but I can play with Sandy Perez. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that's pretty unusual, but that's what's true. I have uh, storage lockers filled with uh, cassette tapes. And so, you know, as you learn uh, both, well, more from there than from here, but, you know, every, every which way imaginable. So I have crates and crates of cassettes and um what do they call the first little digital tapes i can't oh mini discs mini discs i have a ton of those too (laughs) and yeah um so and that of course that learning never ends and i'm still doing it and uh uh we'll be doing it till you know till i'm six feet under you have any plans to get that digitized the university is digitizing all of my cassettes as we speak. Wow, that's um, amazing! What a library! Uh, but it took um, so eight, it took eight years to get them to do it. <laughs> so all these experiences in Cuba um, was this um, when you went to Brazil? Was this after Cuba had already started? Uh, yeah, I went to Brazil in nineteen. My first trip to Brazil was nineteen eighty eight. So. Uh, the hundredth anniversary of the ending the of slavery, and yeah, that's right. Was oh, it eighty-eight yeah. or eighty? Yeah, eighty-six. It's eighty-eight, I think. I think it's eighty-eight. We were no, about. no. I mean, but I can't remember whether I went in eighty-six or eighty-eight. Oh, what was the, the? When was the? When did the dictatorship end? Eighty-five mm. or eighty-seven? I can't tell you that. Well, and I know is. 1888 is the only date I know. Yeah, that's the slavery date. <laughs> right, but, right. Well, in any case, if I said mid to late 80s was my first trip to Brazil, uh, and I spent a month there. And so, but I only went to Rio de Janeiro. I didn't go anywhere else. That was kind of on purpose. I didn't want to because I didn't want to, um, you know, spread myself too thin. And were you intending to just concentrate on samba or were you yes. looking to look into not yes. looking into candomblé at all? No, I was not looking into candomblé. Um, uh, I wanted, I just, samba, you know, mm-hmm. and I wanted to just really focus on that. And uh, since it takes a hundred years to learn it, I figured that a month, <laughs> a month would be plenty. <laughs> So if you you were so into Bata and the Cuban, what was your first um, experience with Samba? Like what drew you to going to Brazil and learning Samba? Well, because I always enjoyed it. And mm-hmm. and even even long before I I made this CD called Bataketu, which kind of was a way of showing how I thought those musics were the same. Um, 
they sounded so similar to me that I never felt like I was, I felt I was still learning the same music, even though mm. they're different musics. Mm -hmm. And I always felt that way. So I, 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 I just kind of felt like it's, it's just an extension of the same thing. So I'm not doing something different. I'm doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though we could spend hours talking about why they're not the same thing and how they're not the same thing. So when you first went to Rio, did you study with a specific Samba school or what was your yeah, plan yeah. of action? Uh, uh, well, our, I went down with a couple of guys and our connection was, um, uh, Diana, do you remember, I don't know whether you have you met him or not. Do you remember Claudio Bibiano? Yeah. Okay. So his brother Celso played tamborim in Portela. Mm. And at that time, we nobody knew anybody that played in an Escola de Samba. I mean, that was like, how would how would you <laughs> how would you know that person, right? And Celso played tamborim in Portel in Portela, and so uh, we had that connect through Claudio Bibiano, and so my allegiance to this day is to Portela, which is why when they won this year, that made me very, very happy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where, and we just went there every day. I mean, that's what I did. I just went. So it's not like I studied with one person at the time. I just more like I just went to the ensayo every day. I just went to Madurera every day. That's where I went. And I didn't have any place else to go because I didn't, I mean, I, how do you go to Salguero if you don't even know where it is, let alone, <laughs> you know, let alone, you know, Rio was very dangerous then. Not like it's not dangerous now, but I mean, really, you couldn't go anywhere unless you had somebody look after you because you could easily get killed. No problem. So I just went there every day. And at that point, there weren't that many Americans no. there studying? I, well, I, I don't want to say that. I don't know that mm -hmm. for a fact. I mean... But that you knew there. Yeah, that I knew. Mm -hmm. I mean, there may have been all kinds of cats from New York or so, I don't know. But I didn't run across them. Let's put it that way. I didn't meet him. <laughs> uh, and then my, I've only gone to Brazil twice. So my second time was uh, with Georgie Alabe. That was now mm, probably five years ago. Um, it's hard for me to go now because i'm i'm tethered to the academic calendar for as long as i continue my employment and you know christmas break you say we'll go down christmas break but it's you know you'd like to see your family when you work 2000 miles away 
mm-hmm. and then uh, you know the the winter semester starts second week of January, so it's I can't just pick up and go like I used to be able to do in the old days. Mm-hmm. So how um, long have you been working at Indiana University? This is my ninth year. Wow. Yeah, it's really weird, very weird. But, you know, they gave me a job, so I took it. <laughs> I don't blame you. What were you doing before the IU gig? I was being a musician. Uh-huh. I mean, I actually, I, I'm actually, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is, but I actually think I still am one, or maybe. Um. Or at least I may I have aspirations towards being one. Um, I was a fairly successful one in relative terms. Um, uh, I you know I played on actually like thousands of records and I mean I, I actually kind of had a career as as a player. And then when the economy went in the dumper. Uh, in 2008, I got a job offer. So I kind of won the lottery and that when there weren't any gigs, uh, hmm. and you know, I didn't live in Portland, so I'm not in, in, I'm not in, you know, green Manhattan or pink martini. So I got a job <laughs> offer. And I took it. So can we rewind a bit back and could you maybe tell us a little bit about your history with Georgie Alabe and a little bit about Pataketu? Yeah, well, pick one. They aren't the same. <laughs> well, how did you come to meet Georgie Alabe? <clears throat> Must have met Georgie. That's a good question. I probably met Georgie the first time when he was running around the Bay Area as part of Oba Oba Mm -hmm. um, for a minute. But then I really met him. Dennis Broughton and I uh, took different musical paths at a certain point. I'm still much more of an Afro-Cuban musician than a Brazilian musician and would never claim otherwise. Um, uh, I, I feel like I can play... Uh, Cuban music at a pretty high level and I I don't necessarily feel that way about Brazilian music um, uh, there's only so many hours in the day and so you, you got to focus on something but Dennis uh, fell much more in love with Brazilian music around the time that I was really uh, studying Bata and so I don't know how Dennis met Georgie, but I met Georgie a little bit in the Bay, but then down in Santa Cruz when Dennis would have him down there. Uh, And then uh, more and more Georgie started to show up uh, in the Bay Area. And uh, I realized very quickly originally that Oh, this guy actually plays samba like how it's supposed to go. I better put myself next to that guy. <laughs> and um, so I started to do that. And then 
we kind of, or I realized that he was an alabe, which has nothing to do with samba per se. And I was a, you know, a bata player and a priest in, in essentially the same religion, if you will. Uh, and so we started to talk about Orisha and how we do it and how they do it, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the end result of which was that I would go to his Candomblé classes knowing that I didn't have the time to really, really learn Candomblé the way that I, that I can, you know, think that I can with Cuban music, but wanting to really learn the different Hichimos and, and the songs, both the Kanchigas also, but just to kind of um, increase my knowledge. And then I think Georgie recognized that even though um, I wouldn't have these parts memorized, but if he showed me a part, I could play it. You know, like I could accompany him. I could be a guy that he could count on to, to you know, hold it down for him while mm -hmm. he was playing. And so I think we developed a very mutually respectful relationship. He is my mestre when it comes to Brazilian music, but, but we also, I think, are sort of colleagues, if you will. Um, and so... Uh, and then Mark Lampson developed a very strong relationship with Georgie, although, I, again, I can't remember the exact specifics of how that happened. But when we started, when Mark and I started to record Bataketu, um, the obvious uh, go-to guy for us was Georgie. And so ever since, you know, uh, Georgie and I have maintained a, very very close relationship awesome and then tell us about Bataketu and your association with Mark well let's see Mark was my student when I taught at San Diego State I used to teach down there and I would fly down there from the Bay Area to teach a couple of days a week and then fly back and uh, Mark and I, uh, we'd play bata, but then I also taught samba at the university, and he was in my samba class as well. And pretty soon, you know, we, we became very close because when he wanted to study bata, then we kind of uh, had a much closer relationship and we we would be playing let's say a bata rhythm and go well that sounds exactly like you know some samba kind of thing or brazilian kind of thing and you know i kept saying you know one day we should like record some of this stuff like try to put them together you know just because they're so similar we could come up with some really cool interesting things and then that would be it. And we would just do our thing. And then one day he called me up and he said, my friend just bought a 
a new uh, console for his recording studio. And he's offering me a bunch of free time so that he can like work the bugs out in the console and get it up and running. Why don't we go record something? And so we went into the studio and all we were going to do was like record like, you know, three minutes of something. And it ended up like being so cool that we both kind of looked at each other and went, oh, like we ought to maybe actually like record it record it, like make a record. And that very initial session, in fact, is what the in, the introduction on Bataketu is. That's from the very first session that we did. Oh, cool. And so then what was going to be like a little three-minute thing turned into a two-year, you know, I hate you forever project. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and um, uh, the end result was Bataketu, which I think still remains. I don't know if Mark feels this way, but I certainly feel that it's it's my signature uh, project. I mean, I have a number of Grammy nominations and stuff. I mean, including for a record I did uh, last year. I mean, so I'm sorry, was a I say was because it's over now, but. A current Grammy nominee, but but the Ketu I think is the my signature record. When I'm dead, that'll be the one thing that people will go, "Oh yeah, he was the guy that did that." So I I, I would assume Mark feels the same, but I won't speak for him. But um, that record, even though it's now 21 years old, still remains, I think, my contribution to. Uh, World music. Now I'll go shoot myself. <laughs> well, I can't even imagine that. I can't believe that it's that. It's been that many years. That yeah, uh, but it has. That's well, actually, more than that. I guess it came out in '95, I think, and here we are in 2017. So, a wow. long, long time ago. Yeah, I've listened to it only a couple thousand times. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, what's funny is I never listen to it. I actually don't listen to anything that I've ever recorded because, you know, I've heard it too many times when I had to mix it. But every now and then I'm at someone's house or something and someone's playing it and I walk in and first of all, it takes me a minute to remember what it is. Oh, yeah, that's my record. <laughs> and But then I still go, which is awesome. I go wow, that's really cool. You know, and so if you can make a record that you can still like 20 some odd years later, that's pretty awesome because usually, you know, it always sounds dated or, you mm -hmm. know, or what. And so to make a record where you go, damn, really? How cool is that? So I've, I'm very, very blessed uh, to to have had, to continue to have that in my life. Yeah, I find new people every day and that are, you know, that are starting to listen to it and had no idea, you know, and then they're turned. <laughs> yeah, you're turning them out, huh? <laughs> yeah. New listeners all the time. 
Yeah, I, I, it's funny. It's not reflecting in my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> you know how those things go these days. Yeah, I know. Um, so back at IU, mm-hmm. um, I have a couple of questions about just being an educator there and being in that kind of setting. You know, people are so spoiled these days. <laughs> they have so much access to resources, teachers, YouTube, you know, all these things. Do you use those things as a tool in yeah. your teaching? Or yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. But see, I, I don't fit. I, don't, I do, but I never know when I'm going to teach from one day to the next. So, I you know, it's complicated because, uh, how do I say this? I mean, yeah, I use all those as tools. and But the fact is that, you know, here we go with the when I walk barefoot through the snow to go to class. Um, the and so I'm going to sound like Grandpa because I guess I am, but the modern generation—they're not, you know, they don't—they don't know how to. They—they they don't. They, they're not addicts like we were, and so they, you know, they want you to hand them the syllabus with the curriculum all laid out and and the and the videography and the bibliography and the youtubeology and all like nice and neat and i i could do that and i choose not to and so i guess i'm a really bad teacher um because i think you're supposed to earn it and work look for it research it Right. Find it, uh, because that's really how you're going to learn it, not me spoon-feeding it to you. Um, so, yeah, I make certain recommendations if they ask for them about what to look at. But, you know, at the university, the thing is it's very different because your class is just one of the other 93 that they're taking. So... Why should they care about your class any more than any other class? Do you have students that are, um, you know, maybe like a few that are specifically drawn to yeah, I have, your teaching? Yeah, I have grad students. Yes, I do. Mm. Uh, and that's different because then I can teach my way, which is you come to my house. I mean, it's not just that you teach. I don't just teach in my office or in the classroom. You really want to learn from me? Get in your car, drive up to my house, make you a cup of coffee. We'll look at some videos. We'll play some drums. We'll talk about life. Um, And so you better have three or four hours, not 50 minutes. But you can do that with grad students, and you can't do that with undergrads. True. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I mean, I'm grateful for my job and I think I've done really good work there. And I think I've brought things to that campus that, um, that they appreciate, but in reality, this kind of music, it doesn't fit in the academy 
it, it, it you know, and then it's the thing of, okay, is some exposure, to, let's take it out of Brazil and Cuba, is some exposure to Indian classical music a good thing for a college sophomore? Yeah, probably. It broadens their horizons and, you know, gives them some awareness of another culture or language. But for the teacher, I don't think it's particularly uh, rewarding. What's rewarding is when you have a student that says, I want to learn to play tabla and I'm not leaving until you teach me. Hmm. But, you know, the once a week tabla class, how can the, how can that be rewarding for the teacher? Interesting. Well, uh, let's look at samba. If you have a community, oh, in fact, so Diana, I haven't, I don't know anything about the current uh, uh, state of samba in Portland, mm-hmm. but but what happens in every city anywhere outside of Hudi Shaneru? Well, we're go- we have a community samba group. <laughs> okay, what does that mean? That means that once a week, half of the people in the group show up to play, <laughs> but, but but they haven't touched their instrument for the other six days and 23 hours. So at a certain point, the director starts ripping their hair out. Why? Because you're not getting any better. Yeah. Right? right. Yep. Teaching the same thing every week. Right. Yeah. And so why is that rewarding for the teacher? It's not. So... <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. I listen. You, Diana knows me. Everybody will say that I'm a really negative, um, depressing kind of guy because it's you know I'm just negative. And to me, no, I'm not negative. I think I am actually pretty joyful person, and I live every day to the fullest and with as many smiles on my face as I can put there. But but I'm also a realist. And the truth is that realistically, most uh, people, you know, they're kind of learning, okay, fine. But what does the teacher want? The teacher wants a committed student. Right. And and, uh, I am at an age and a place in my life where I don't want to teach anybody. I'll teach anybody. I don't care how good you are, and I don't care how experienced you are. I mean, I'm always somewhat amused when people go, do you teach beginners? Well, of course I would teach a beginner. Why wouldn't I teach a beginner as long as what? They care. Exactly. Say it again? I said exactly. So it's not a question then of... It's a question of commitment, and I, however far I've gotten as an as a, as a student of these musics, nobody can say that I didn't work at it. I have busted my butt to learn what I know, so I, I'm just not interested in teaching the once a weekers. Not that now I want to be very clear about something because I don't want, want you to misunderstand me. I I might want to, I love to play tennis. So once a week I go to the tennis court and I hit the ball around. 
Half the time the ball goes into the net, and half the time it goes <laughs> over the fence. But I'm having a great time. I'm, I'm having a ball. So nobody can say to me, oh, man, you need to go practice your backhand against the wall four hours a day. No, I don't. I'm having a great time. But I don't go to a professional tennis coach and say, you know, um, here, hit the ball with me on, you know, once a week, because that's a waste of their time. So mm -hmm. all I'm arguing for is, you know, like everybody should should be where they want to be. And where I want to be is not with once a weekers, not because once a week can't be fun and rewarding and fulfilling and a great time, but because you're not going to get any better once a week, then I'm not interested. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it and that you shouldn't have a ball. It's just I don't want to participate in that. That's all. Sure. It can also be frustrating for people who are participating in the once a week because that's the only thing around and every nobody gets better but you right. and so you there's never like a there's so many what am levels. i trying to say there's, like you know you're trying to work really hard you're hungry for the knowledge and you're trying to get better and you're just like can't help yourself and practicing a lot on your own and and learning and learning and learning and then it never the the whole ensemble never grows and that can be well, yeah, I mean... Disheartening it, as well. I mean, from, from that other side, too. Precisely. No, precisely. Yeah. And, and then again, so these are long, complicated questions. So if, for example, somebody says... Um, and again, I can, I'm saying this. Please, anybody who's listening, if you're from Portland, I'm not picking on Portland. I don't know anything about the current Samba situation in Portland. So I'm just picking the city out of the hat. You know, someone says, yeah, man, Portland's got it going on, man. You Move to Portland if you're into Samba. It's like, man, they're just killing it in Portland. Meanwhile, the people in Portland are going, yeah, we haven't learned one new piece in a year and a half. And so um, the question of, you know, cultural richness and cultural enrichment um, just because you've got people doing something doesn't mean that they're necessarily doing it of great quality. And so that, you know, that's an issue, um, I think, everywhere. Uh, if you go hear a real Escola de Samba, then that's where the bar is, folks. So if you want to think you're kicking butt because once a week you get together and go, Beam, boom, beam, boom. Well, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're having a great time and enjoying it. But don't kid yourself into thinking you're playing samba. And so the frustration that you talk about is um, quite real because the question is, what what do you aspire to? What 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 are you trying to what are you hoping to get to? And I don't mean this in a competitive way, like aspire to being, it's not a competition, but what we know is that, well, 
what I know is that the higher the level, the more fun it is because right. the harder it mm-hmm. kicks butt. Sure. The more you know, the better it gets. Yeah. That's so true. I understand that on a smaller level, but yes, that's, that is true. And so, you know, I keep arguing for we need to get better. Why? Because it's more fun. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Spyro's such a jerk. He's so mean. Actually, no, it's the opposite. It's just that you don't understand the dues you have to pay to get it to the level where you suddenly actually feel the liftoff, you know, of the rocket engine. And you go, oh, that's what that guy's been talking about. I think I just heard it in the background. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's called living next to the airport, as you know. Um, so, you know, that's the problem. The problem is that quality of anything requires sacrifice and discipline and effort and responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're just a weekend warrior, you're not you're not interested in that kind of level of sacrifice, nor should you be. Again, don't tell me I can't go out on the tennis court and whack the ball around and have a great time because I'm not trying to play in the U.S. Open. I get to do whatever I want with my life, but but then I but I'm also not presumptuous enough to ask, you know, Roger Federer to go hit the tennis ball with me. <laughs> I think for a lot of Americans, like West African drum classes and samba classes end up being a bit of like a cathartic um, experience more than a music experience because a lot of us are so, you know, we don't have religion, religious communities as much as we did in the past and things are very segregated and we have pretty busy and controlled lives. And I think that a lot of these classes can fill that cathartic Piece, and it can also fulfill a community piece too, where people, you know, you meet other people and you make friends. And yeah, and, and so my argument is, go go to a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, or no, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> or yeah, I, I, I'm with that. Friends and social uh, 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 context, it's all great. Just don't call me. Mm-hmm. That's all. Just don't call me. I'm not interested. I'm interested in sacrifice, discipline, effort. And again, has nothing to do with the level that you're at. It's, it's making the effort to get better. So if there are people out there listening that would like to um, <laughs> take lessons with you, yeah. uh, do you do, do you do Skype lessons or, no. or is it all in person or it's I all mean, in person do they have to be in Indiana? Do you have to be in the Bay area? What's the, what's the yeah, situation? Yeah. Yeah. I don't do Skype lessons and, and I don't even, I don't want to teach uh, because I teach for a living, meaning that's my university gig. So, uh, 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 I, I, I do very little teaching privately, um, uh, because when I have time off, the last thing I want to do is be at work. Mm-hmm. 
But I, I did see some videos you're putting together for your um, online conga. Yeah, I have. A, yeah, I have. I, you know, I have congamasterclass.com, and Georgie and I also have sambamasterclass.com. Um, that's kind of a way that you can you can teach, uh, share knowledge, and teach. Um, I'm very proud of both of those sites. I mean, I'm a I I go on those sites as a student. Oh wow. Um. Uh. Congomasterclass.com has got arguably the best Afro-Cuban drum set presentations anywhere. We've got all these bad dudes from Cuba on our on our site. Um, uh, we teach everything from bata to rumba to salsa to son to wido to bembe. To, I mean, it, that Congo Masterclass is awesome, and mm-hmm. I'll go there. I'll go there to find out what Jesus, how did Jesus play that palo toque? I want to know. Um, how did Bom Bom play that drum set pattern? Uh, and then Samba Masterclass, I mean, Georgie's on there playing all every single candomblé rhythm and all kinds of different forms of samba and kaisha patterns and hepiki and third surdu and like I go there all the time to go. Wait, 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 wait. What, what was that again? Like those two sites are awesome. Um, but I think those, you know, having a website where you teach is kind of different than. I, I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't take on a student if they were really committed, but you know, I'm I'm getting to an age where every spare minute matters. You know, like free time is more important, more valuable than making money time. Um, Because I'm a student and I have to do my studying. And if I'm teaching you, then I'm not studying. And I don't have that many years left to learn all the stuff I need to know before I die. So I got I got I got work to do. When do you do your studying? Um. When do you like to do your studying, I should say? Oh, in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. I got to, if I don't do it when I first get up, uh, then there's every reason to not do it. <laughs> sure. Right? Makes sense. Makes I mean, sense. Oh, I forgot to clean the toilet with a toothbrush. I better <laughs> go do that. Um, <laughs> you know, just any reason to procrastinate, you know, I, I, I'm not good at, you know, I don't put in as much time as I should because I'm tired from working all day long, right? Mm-hmm. So I wasn't kidding when I said, so when I'm not teaching, I really want that time to do my, to do my studying. Because I have, you know, in the religious musics that I play, I have an enormous amount of uh, uh, spoken and sung material that I have to know that has nothing to do with percussion. He's a busy guy. Are you playing with any groups in Indiana or in um, the Bay Area? I play in the Bay Area with three groups. Um, I had a group in Indiana that I led called Ritmos Unidos, and I had to break it up because it was just too hard to keep everybody together because half the group were professors. And so 
Nobody's mm. schedules could really line up. So I'm completely orphaned musically in Indiana. But here in the Bay Area, I play with uh, the Wayne Wallace Latin Jazz Quintet, which um, is a fairly highly acclaimed group. We have several Grammy nominations. Um, and uh, I play in what might be the only Charanga group in the United States. That, I, that might not be completely true, but if there's another one, I don't know who it is. The name of that group is called La Moderna Tradición, and that's a straight-up charanga band. We play danzones and cha-cha-chas and some timba. And then I co-lead a band with my brother Carl Perazzo, who, uh, and we play old-school conjunto, just uh, old-style, like instrumentation of percussion-wise of just conga and bongo. No timbales, and that group is called Conjunto Carabali. And um, all three of those bands play once a year, so I maintain a highly active <laughs> performing schedule of about five gigs a year. <laughs> uh, but I, 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 I do stay. I am in those three groups. Gotcha. Cool. And I still record a lot. You know, I, I do a lot of that still. You've spent a lot of years playing um, music. What is one of your most memorable moments in your career? Wow. Uh, being hoisted onto the stage in Cuba by the, my hero band of all time, Varritmo Oriental, to be able to stand in the middle of them while they were playing and then them making me sit in and playing with them. Wow. That's my most memorable moment, which has nothing to do with my career, but has everything to do with the, the memory of that feeling. That's awesome. Yeah, it was. Well, thank you for talking to us. Thank you My for taking pleasure. the time. As Diana knows, you know, I go on another five hours. You better, <laughs> you better break this off quick, or you know, it, it's just going to be a, a, a midnight uh, nightcap. <laughs> we'll have to do version two. Right. Get those other I mean, stories out of you. Oh, there's 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 lots more. Believe me, this yeah. this was this was the edited version. <laughs> we'll have a a shot glass next to us. Right next time. That would be wise. <laughs> um, all right. So thank you for putting up with my my uh, technical issues of the 21st century because I don't know nothing about it. You can go back to the 13th century now. <laughs> yeah, that's that's where I'm headed. It's exactly where I'm headed. Are you kidding? Um. And, you know, I don't know why anybody would want to listen to all this crap, but it's always fun to uh, to sort of self, you know, look at look at your life from years back and go, oh, yeah, that's right. I did do that. So that was kind of fun. So I, yeah. I, I certainly appreciate the opportunity. And I and I hadn't even mentioned loaded and rolling. Oh, now, see, <laughs> now, 
Now, yeah, now you're asking for trouble, right? That's right. Actually, you know what? That could be my best memory ever. My yeah. first, my first gig ever in life with Loaded and Rolling. That probably would have been the most mind blowing moment of my performing career. Literally, huh? Yeah. Well, because you can have that much fun, and then somebody actually gives you money at the end of it. Are you kidding? So, uh, thank you, ladies. I am grateful. our interview with Michael Spiro. Thanks for listening. If you would like to get in touch with him, you can find him on Facebook. Yes, he is on Facebook, really. He is, even though he says he doesn't know technology. He's on Is he? Yes. (laughs) Um, He has a page and then he has a personal um, personal page too. So there's his musician page and then just his regular one. Gotcha. But if you'd like to find out more about learning with him online, you can go to sambamasterclass.com. That's sambamasterclass.com. Or you can go to congamasterclass.com, which has more um, Afro-Cuban-type rhythms and other rhythms. Um, And I believe that he's been adding more to that. Um, Just added some really cool stuff, which you mentioned, I believe. Um, So check that out. You can also... um, Look for the infamous Bata K2 release on Amazon. Um, we'll put a link on our site to it. And if you go to that, that will actually contribute to our podcast. So it would be great if you are interested and want to help us out. Go check out the Bata K2 CD on Amazon via our link. I wanted to mention something that my husband said this week. He was, we were talking about some of the technical difficulties we had in, uh, <laughs> Arthur said, well, you're not talking to him because he's good with computers. You're talking to him because he, you know, went to Cuba in the 80s and took a truck to (laughs) a sugarcane truck, I think it was, out to the village and learned to play with with masters out there. So, (laughs) yes. So it is. He's great. I just uh, can't say enough about him. So many good stories. He's the best. So shout outs for this week. We want to give a huge heart shaped shout out to Tilo from Bloco Energia. He sent us a really, really nice message this week with a, a little poem in it that was just one of the sweetest things that um, I think we've gotten. It, yeah, it was really it was nice. It really touching. It's just nice to hear from listeners and friends out there that... Um, hearing that they appreciate what we're doing and appreciate our guests especially because that's who we really want to promote so thank you so much Tilo he said after listening to the he he woke up with insomnia at like 3 in the morning or 4 in the morning and was trying to get back to sleep and decided to listen to Dana's podcast and just got more energized (laughs) and excited (laughs) anyway thank you Tilo We'd also like to give a shout out to um, the guys at the Discussions in Percussion podcast. Um, I'm really into their podcast. If you guys are 
interested in any of this type of stuff. They also interviewed Scott Kettner, but they also interview people who are doing all kinds of all kinds of stuff. Percussion. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Drum corps to like um, different types of marching styles I've never heard of, and jazz musicians and all kinds of interesting people and instructors at universities and different things. So um, definitely check out their podcast. Send us your group's audio. We would love to feature your group's audio on this um, podcast and um, give you guys a little bit of attention. Please send that to us at um, our email address, thebrazilianbeat at gmail.com. Also send us any messages. If you um, have anything you want to hear, any suggestions for guests or anything like that, please let us know. Um, Please rate us on iTunes. Five stars, please. (laughs) Um... (laughs) And just let us know what you think of the podcast. You know, Courtney, I What's think one it? of these days, somebody's going to send us an audio of their of their band. So, Who's going to be first? Maybe we should have a special... I know, we should have a contest. Yeah. Send us your music and something will happen. <laughs> <laughs> we'll print some t-shirts. <laughs> oh, that's a question I was going to ask. Are people interested in t-shirts? Um... We're Number one fan t-shirts? Yeah, we're thinking about <laughs> printing out t-shirts. Um, so if you would be interested in having one of the initial <laughs> t-shirts, let us know. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'd wear one. <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> number one fan? The Brazilian Beats number one fan? <laughs> Oh, okay. If you want to learn more about our guests or see pictures of them and just, you know, find all the links in um, show notes for anything you've heard, um, go to www.thebrazilianbeat.com. Um, the email address again is thebrazilianbeat at gmail.com. Uh, Twitter, BrazilianBeat1, uh, and that's the number one. Facebook, The Brazilian Beat Podcast. Instagram, The Brazilian Beat. And um, we're on a whole bunch of different. Uh, podcast players and and all that if you would like to support us if you like this show and you want to support us please go um and click on our links to amazon through different products that we have up on our on our website it won't charge you anymore for those things but we get a little bit of kickback from amazon for driving traffic to their site and um that'll help us out a lot and it's even if they have amazon prime right yes even if you have amazon prime you just go through our link to get to amazon and um they keep track of all of it. It doesn't have to. You don't have to purchase the thing that we advertise. It can be anything. A refrigerator. Yeah, buy something expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to remember to do that. <laughs> I always forget. I can't do it way. because I'm. I they already have my IP address, so they don't know me. I guess I could use my husband's computer. And do it that way. <laughs> I'll try it. I'm going to try it. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for listening, everybody. Thanks, people.